0: Saba Bona, and thanks for listening. Welcome to the Wines of South Africa podcast. My name is Jim Clark. I'm the U.S. Marketing Manager for Wines of South Africa. In each episode, we explore some aspect of South African wine. We talk with winemakers, winery owners, and other members of South Africa's vibrant wine industry, and we also give a sommelier a chance to share their impressions of the wines. If you'd like to see some pictures of the people I'll be talking with, maps of relevant wine regions, and some other visual aids, please go to our website, Wosa.us and click on the podcast tab. Today we're going to look at a region much talked about over the past dozen years or so, but which barely got a second thought back when South African wines were emerging onto the international market after apartheid. This is the Swartland. The name dates back to the 1650s, when Jan van Riebeck, the first commander of the Dutch East India Company's Cape Colony, looked out over this wide expanse of rolling hills, which were basically black in color. Riebeck didn't struggle thinking of a name. He called it Etzvartaland, the black land, and got on with his life. The hills owed their color to the native vegetation called Rhinosterfeld, which turns a dark color at certain seasons of the year. Today, Rhinosterfeld has dwindled to just 3% of its original expanse, and the Swartland's fields are no longer black. They're mostly a burnished golden color. Wheat fields dotted with bright spots of canola and, of course, vineyards. While wine growing in the Swartland dates back at least as far as the early 19th century, in the 1990s, most of the winemaking was in the hands of cooperatives. Farmers grew the grapes, but then sold them to these large companies, who would vinify them, blend them, and sell them off to merchants who created their own brands. That doesn't mean there weren't some remarkable vineyards even then, as Charles Back was about to discover. Even if you don't recognize Charles' name, you've probably heard of his wines. His family farm in Parle is called Fairview, but a couple decades ago, he introduced a brand called Goats du Rome. The punny name didn't sit well with the French, who tried to sue him. That turned out to be the best publicity he could have asked for. Goats du Rome went on to become a roaring success. I spoke to Charles last year in the restaurant at Fairview, and he told me how he got interested in the Swartland. I apologize if the recording's a bit noisy due to the setting.
1: I went to visit a friend of mine who was a winemaker at Swartland Co-op. And he always says, Swatland never had wine. Absolute nonsense. They had a big cooperative there and made 20,000 tons of wine. Uh, so they had made wine for many, many years. I went to taste there, and I tasted, and I tasted a tank of uh, Sauvignon Blanc, which was phew, one of the most expressive Sauvignon Blancs I'd ever tasted in South Africa or anywhere in the world, for that matter. It was almost like Kiwi-like in style. It was made, I think. So I asked the guy where, where the farm is, where this comes from. Because in my assessment, um, I thought that the Swatland was quite a warm producing area. And I thought if one can make a wine like that in that area, which I perceive as a warm wine, going you know, imagine what you could do with Rhone varieties and stuff <laughs> like that. So I thought let me go and visit this farm. So I went to visit the guy coincidentally when I arrived I knew who the guy was we met somewhere in the military or something, I can't remember and then I, I, I said to him look I just come here and, and I'm looking for land in the area I was your farm for maybe you know, for a I said well, I've been waiting for you, what a coincidence! I'm mm. actually thinking exactly of doing just that and I bought that farm that day, I shook hands on the deal and, um, and then we put up a cellar we built the cellar and we made the first wine and then I, I, I was speaking to Robin Day uh, from Australia who was asking, Are we having a chat and I said I'm looking for a winemaker for this business. I want somebody young, passionate and who gets what I'm trying to achieve here. So he said he knows of a guy who works at a cult that is very good. I said who's in that guy? I know Ivan Sardi. So then I got hold of Evan and I said Do you want to join me? I'm going to start this and he joined me. So we started I think in 98. And then when I harvested the first grapes, I realized we were onto something really big. The wine was amazing. Just amazing. It was about a year into the business. I realized Yirvan is going to want to do his own thing one day. So I told he's he to start making wine in the cellar for his own account. And then I think he made his first two vintage of Kulamera there on the side until he had enough stock. And then he moved on, which was fine. And he became what he has become. And then a guy named Charles de Blachy joined me. Who I rate is not only the most underrated, but the one of the best winemakers in the country, without a uh, shadow of a doubt. And I've
2: worked with many. My name is Charles de Brissier. I'm the head winemaker at Spicewood Wine Company, situated in the Swatland, South Africa. I started off making wine many years ago, in 1992, in Paarl. at uh, the, the cooperative as an assistant winemaker for eight years. And then I went to a new winery I sort of developed. It's called Rakes Private Cellar in Tilbach. In the past, Tilburg was only renowned for white wines. And so myself, the owner, and Gunther Brussel, retired old cellar master from Niederburg. We designed the cellar and we decided via some viticulture consultants to plant also sort of Rome grape varieties in Tilbach. Since 2002 till now, I'm doing the wine here. Was sourcing from a property not far from here. It's about five kilometers from here. Also, Swatland Fruit. The farm's name is called the Rearbox I still uh, buy fruit from that farm, uh, the Chenin Blanc. It's also quite a unique block, I think planted in 1978. This farm itself, apart from the Sauvignon Blanc, there used to be old Chenin Blanc, uh, Cabernet, Colombard, whole spectrum.
0: While many New World wine regions focus on labeling wines by their grape variety, South Africa produces a large amount of high-quality blends of all sorts. Some follow combinations of grapes common in parts of France, while others are more creative. Spice Root quickly came to focus on red blends, led by Chakalaka and their flagship Malabar. The former includes Morved, Syrah, Carignan, Grenache, Tanat, and Petite Syrah. The latter, Syrah, Morved, and Grenache, again with the slightly unusual addition of Petite Syrah.
2: It started off in Yemen's time, uh, Malabar, so we were experimenting, we made all these small parcels, keep it separately for at least 12 to 18 months in barrel, then we taste all these components, make blends, put it back into wood, retaste before bottling, like, don't like, and then after a few years we came up with, with the, the blend of Malabar, and then I think the first vintage of Laka was in 2007, also couple of years of experimenting and then done the blend and then since then it's always been the same blend. In the ideal world, I would only make one wine and it would be a sort of a Mediterranean blend like Chocolata. These blended reds from the Swartla, even the whites are fantastic. And they're very popular of light as well.
0: When Ebn Sadi left Route, he introduced the world to two wines. Colomella is a red Mediterranean style blend and the Platius, a more unusual blend, combining Chenin Blanc with 10 or so other white grape varieties. Grenache Blanc, Claret Blanche, Sémillon, Colombard, and others. For a few years, Ebon and Spice Roots seemed like lone voices in the wilderness. But soon, several other young winemakers began their own projects in the Swartland, and the region really began to take off.
3: Hi, I'm Chris Molyneux from Molyneux and Liu Family Wines.
4: And I'm Andrea Molyneux from Molyneux and the Family
3: Wines. I studied in Stellenbosch, at at Stellenbosch University, winemaking, viticulture and enology. And for my sort of final year practical, I had tasted the wines from a winery called Spice Root, which was a relatively new winery that had just started up in the late 90s. And I just found the wines to be really interesting and fascinating. Now, I'd never actually been out to the Swatland, but I sent the winemaker, I think it was my very, very first email at, at that time, to kind of apply for a job interview for the harvest. And obviously the winemaker at that time was Ibn Sardi, And he replied and said, sure, I'd love to meet you. So I drove out to the Swatland and I just felt an amazing energy and a real sort of special feeling in the area. And so I had an interview with him and got the job to do a vintage with him at Spice Root. And spent the winter that year just coming out and doing a bit of pruning with him and work in the vineyards. And then, unfortunately, in in about November that that year, so about two months before harvest, he ended up quitting his job there to start his own project full time, Saudi Family Wines. And he said to me, Well, you know, you're welcome to come and work with me in in my project, but I was keen to work in a slightly bigger cellar and learn how to operate machinery because. University teachings are quite theoretical. So I ended up working at another winery at Rustenburg in Stalemars Advantage, which was, which was great. But just from that experience, those few months of coming up to the Swatland, really really got to know the area pretty well and, and fall in love with the place. And then my first job in the wine industry in South Africa was working in Tulbagh at a new winery that I helped start up called Tulbagh Mountain Vineyards, which is now called Fable. That was the region just next door to the Swatland. And it was a new winery. So for the first... Before vintages, we didn't have any fruit from all the young vines on the property. So we started another label where we sourced fruit that we thought was interesting from all over. So from different regions like Stellenbosch, Algen, Swatland being one of them. And just was amazed every year at the quality of fruit that we got from the Swatland. And it was fruit that allowed us to be really free in the winery where we could make these amazing wines with a lot of intensity and and character without having to manipulate them too much. We didn't have to do a lot of extraction or do anything to get really amazing character and and balance in the wine. So really just, once again, re-entrenched that sort of feeling I had about the region. And then on one of my travels, I met Andrea. We were both working in the south of France, and I managed to convince her to come back to South Africa. And after a while, worked together for a couple of years in Tulbach. And then in 2007, when we got engaged and went to get married, we decided then to start our own project up. And it was really a no-brainer for us to move to the Swatland because we were just so in love with the fruit here and it got him to know where the special vineyards were and also the people here. I think that often one thing that's, that's overlooked a little bit is the wines are really amazing, but that the people here are also what makes the region special. So when we were looking to start our own project, it really it almost wasn't even a choice. It was just obvious where we were going to start to settle and, and start up our project. So yeah, that was in 2007.
4: I had studied winemaking in California and was working in the Napa Valley. My first year out of Davis, one of the other interns at the winery I was working with at was Kelly Lowe. And so he was not my first connection with South Africa, but definitely one of the closest ones that I'm still in touch with now. Because he would talk about how beautiful it was and how the hills turned pink at sunset. So when I did my first overseas internship, I decided to come to South Africa and worked for Waterford that first year. And then when Chris and I ended up meeting in the south of France the next year, it was just super easy for me to come back to South Africa because I'd already fallen in love with the country and the wines and the people.
0: Eben Saudi, the Molynews, Adi Bodenhurst, Callie Lowe from Porcelainberg, and Mark Kent from Buchenhutskloof came together to form the Swartland Revolution. Journalists picked up the name and ran with it.
4: It was just this natural flow. We were already drawn to each other friendship-wise because of our personalities, but then that led to us having similar ideas about wine as well. And then therefore, naturally, we're all drawn to the Swartland independently, but then supporting each other over time. Because in 2007, we came to the Swartland, even was obviously here first, The next year, Audi arrived, and I think it was the year after that that Kelly arrived. So it was all four of us four years in a row. The thing about the Swatland Revolution was originally it was meant just to educate people in other parts of South Africa, starting with Cape Town, actually starting with our own region, about what Swatland wine, what Swatland fruit was about. It started because in at Castile, our kind of main tourism town, for lack of a better word, in the Swartland, where most of the cute restaurants and hospitality venues are, nobody wanted to order a bottle of our own wine to serve in the restaurants. They said, no, tourists don't want Swartland wine, they want Stollenbosch wine. And we thought this was absolutely ridiculous. You know, when you go to Burgundy, you order Burgundy. When you go to Napa, you order Napa wines. So for there not to be any Swartland wines on the wine lists and restaurants in our own towns, we thought that the first step to change that was to hold an educational tasting to educate our local community and then Cape Town and the surroundings as well. So the first Swartland revolution, there was about seven of us pouring our wines just in the local restaurant. So this is kind of a walkabout tasting. And it had a little bit of an impact, but it was definitely the first step to realize that we needed to do something bigger to draw people to the area. That next year, we were invited to the Hospice de Rhone in Paso Robles, which is ironically very similar in landscape and feel to the Swartland. We were at the Hospice de Rhone doing a seminar on South African Syrah, the whole of South Africa, not just the Swartland but there were a handful of sweatland producers there. Eben was there with us. It was moderated by James Malsworth from Wine Spectator. Mark Kent was there representing Buchanites Cliff Wines and had just started Porcelainburg. And we were at the diner after our seminar one morning. We were like, this is the kind of event we should be putting on to really draw an international crowd, but really focus on professionals and making it... Not just a tasting, not a festival, but really a symposium, making it educational, but always having an element of fun and community. So that way, everyone leaves the event just feeling uplifted about the wines, but they also feel educated. But they also feel like if they saw the guy they were having dinner with the night before on the street the next day, they were old buddies because everyone was at the Swatland Revolution together. So that next year, we started the big event that became the Swatland Revolution which was really about education, but fun, and it ended up just making such a huge impact that the next year we were in Time magazine.
0: The revolution may have run its course. Their last event was in 2015. But like many revolutions, it led to new rules, or guidelines at least. The same group of winemakers who were behind the Swartland Revolution also created the Swartland Independent Producers to help keep the region's identity clear in the minds of wine drinkers. Their requirements ask winemakers to use native yeasts and avoid the use of nutrients and other additives. They also call for the minimal use of new oak. Membership is voluntary, but wines from the Swartland that meet the specifications can bear the Swartland Independent Producers Seal.
3: When we started the festival in 2010, I think there were 10 or 12 wineries in the Swartland. But we saw that there was this huge interest in other producers to come to the area and share in this amazing place. So whether it was young producers to start up a project or other wineries from other regions to come and purchase fruit and make wine from it. And we could see there was this real interest in reviving the region. But what I think was great was after our four, five, six vintages of experience, we kind of got a pretty clear idea about what worked well in the area in terms of which grape varieties, what styles of winemaking really worked well. And obviously, what didn't work well. And because there were only a handful of wineries and there wasn't a huge awareness of the region or defined style of the region, the four of us realized that we could get together and form a group where we could work together to share those experiences with each other, but also with any new producers who came to the area. So that we all made wine in a way that had us transparency to it. And so the wines that were bottled spoke of the Swatland rather than some winemaking technique. An idea was that we would have guidelines that made wine that was bottled with a sense of place, so that whether you were in a restaurant in New York or a wine shop in London or a bar in Cape Town and you ordered a bottle of Swatland wine that you'd never heard of before, you kind of had a feeling or an idea of what the wine was going to taste like because the wine was made in a transparent way. So you were never going to get an over a gab or something that could taste like it came from anywhere. So that was the idea with independence is, is we would get together, share ideas, share experiences, and work together to make wine that had a sense of place so that the region of the Swatlands started to build a consistent identity that was easy for people to understand. That was really the idea. and. It's a nice concept and a nice idea. The challenge was how do you do that? One of the biggest things we sat down and spent many, many, many hours was kind of writing up a charter or a document with guidelines in terms of the winemaking. And I think the one good thing is we've been open to changing that over time because obviously as we learn and experience the ideas that we had not 10 years ago, a lot of them were great, but some of them were maybe too dogmatic, somewhere, but not strict enough. So over time, we've relaxed a few rules and made a few stricter. You learn as you go along.
0: If the guidelines of the Swartland Independent Producers are meant to make sure that Swartland's terroir can express itself, what is that terroir? As Chris explains, the Swartland is quite big and the vineyards are scattered, so different pockets offer different potentials for wine growing.
3: It's quite varied, but pretty much the whole region is really dry. So you can plant vineyards all around the west of the region, which is pretty much at the ocean. And there, they're in some places getting 100, 150 mils of rain a year and essentially everything in the winter, so nothing in the growing season. So it's extremely difficult to grow vines there. But as you move inland, there are these flat rolling plains and then you start to reach a few mountains. There's three main mountains in the Swatland. In the south, you have a mountain called the Pardiburgh, which is about 50 kilometers as the crow flies to Cape Town. So that's right in the south. Then about 20 kilometers north of that, you have another mountain called Castileburg. And then about another, probably 80 kilometers north of that, you have a third mountain called Piquetberg. And the nice thing is all three of those mountains are very different from each other. So the Pardiburg, which is in the south, is a big Granite outcrop, very, very, very old. I think it's about 400 million years old. So it's uh, very deep composed, so very deep sandy soils. Castileberg, which is further north, is based on slate or schist. So it's more shallow, more rocky soils, just so slightly higher in clay and, and less sandy. And then right in the north, you have Piquetberg which is higher in elevation and, and more sandstone. So again, a very different soil type. And most of the vineyards in the Swatland are kind of centered around these three mountains, because that's where the rainfall is the highest. So you're either able to get winter and summer rains when the fronts come in, and most of the rain falls around the mountains, but also the farmers on the mountains can collect the winter rainfall and use that for irrigation in summer. So a very big region. I think from north to south, it's about 120 miles, 180 kilometers, a very big region. And east to west, it's almost as large, but not a lot of vineyards there. They're mostly centered on these three mountain ranges.
4: On the granite soils that we deal with, as Chris mentioned, it's a decomposed granite. So even though there's a mountain in the middle of it, in the sort of foothills areas, it's, it's quite sandy. And that allows the roots to get incredibly deep into the ground. The sandy soils mean that the roots can penetrate and reach their own water source. And because grapevines always want to reflect above the ground what's happening below the ground, a deep root source means you typically have a bigger canopy, the leaf-growing area. Because we're working mostly with bush vines, specifically on the Partaberg, the canopy acts like a huge umbrella. And if you have bigger leaves and a bigger leaf-growing area, it creates more shade, and then therefore it's always a little bit cooler where the grapes are growing inside the canopy. And cooler great growing areas mean higher acidity, lower pH, more fragrance, more elegant characters, more perfume, and more elegant tannins on the red wine. And then on the schist soils, it's pretty much the opposite. So the roots can't get as deep. And so everything about the vine is smaller. With a smaller root system, the leaves are smaller, the canopy is smaller, and the bunches are smaller. So everything is sort of bonsai style on the schist and that means that there's a bigger skin to juice ratio for the grapes that are coming off with more skin you get more just natural extract more tannin, more concentration from the grapes coming off of the schist soils. specifically on the red wines but for the white grapes as well you get more density and more texture from the white wines. And then iron soils, those are the rich red gravelly soils that Chris mentioned, have more of a clay substance to them, and they're therefore more round, more opulent wines. Not necessarily heavy wines, but they're more voluptuous in their use.
0: Every wine region comes with its challenges. For the Swartland, the biggest one has been water. That's been especially apparent recently. The Western Cape experienced a drought from 2016 to 2018 that really put the Swartland to the test.
2: The most critical part of making wine in the Swatland is your soil selection. The soil must retain the water that we got in the winter all the way towards the end of harvest, which is the end of March. If we don't have sufficient winter rainfall, which is in May, June, July, we stopped, and that's what happened in 2016, 17, and 18. So the annual or the 100-year average rainfall for the Swatland is 450 millimetres of rain. The winter of 2016, we are at only 237 millimetres measured on our farms. So that's only half, and that's why we, we run into problems. And not us in the Swatland, the whole of the Western Cape, it was all over the news. Tourism, because of the water restrictions, was down more than 50%. So the main thing, sufficient winter rainfall, that's what we need in the Swatland. There's no runoff water, no rivers, uh, there's no boreholes here, it's all natural. We need to get enough winter rainfall to do dryland farming here. And then obviously back by the right soil selection.
0: The region's challenges definitely don't outweigh the opportunities there. And a steady stream of young winemakers keep coming to the Swartland. The region's offerings are becoming more and more diverse in terms of style. But the sense of community and mutual support remains steady.
5: I'm Jürgen Ghos from Interlego Wines. It's an operation I run in the Swartland. about 45 minutes north from Cape Town. And we do about 45,000 bottles at the moment. What we're trying to do with Interlego is to rather work with varietals that fits really well with the climate that we find ourselves in, especially in the Swatland, where it's a bit more Mediterranean climate. So we kind of adapt to the climate and not the other way around. We're actually a bunch of outsiders because if you really go and look at who really grew up in the swatland and whose roots are from the swatland there's not a lot of winemakers actually i'm thinking of david saudi and even saudi and then the bassons they are originally from here and stuff but from the younger winemakers and the guys my age like he in swatland all of them are actually from all other regions of the country and i think the nice thing was everybody brought a lot of different ideas which was really cool and there was no pressure on us that you would follow in the steps of the previous generation, so we were able to do whatever we wanted to, create our own little story, our own little thing. I actually worked here in 2011 with another company, Lamazuka, and that's where I worked with Craig Hawkins, who, who runs Testalonga. But that's also when I started to make some of my own wines, the Interlego brand, on the side. So I was just doing a few hundred bottles every year while working with Craig at Lama So that's actually how the whole thing started. But if you go even back to 2008, I worked with Ibn Saadi from the Saadi family. I did a vintage there with him in '08. That's actually the first time I really got introduced to the Swatland, which was a very unknown region to me. But from day one, it was really cool. I really liked it. The people were great. It was just a nice vibe, everything. I think for any region to be really successful, you need to work together. I think it's with anything in life, it's like that. If you work together, we are gonna achieve it a lot sooner than if you fight off your neighbor or you know, if you're trying to conquer it on your own.
4: Without the support from the local farmers that were very accepting of new people coming in and trying to uplift the region and really make just awesome quality wine and really bring a name to the region, we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing.
0: Aside from a welcoming attitude, Another thing Swartland's farmers have to offer is a great number of old vine vineyards. Old vines produce fewer grapes than younger ones, but many people believe that those grapes often show more character and quality. The old vine project, which works to protect such vineyards, will definitely be a subject for a later episode. Swartland is home to almost 800 hectares of vines that are aged 35 years or more. They make up more than 15% of Swartland's vineyards. In the past, many of the grapes from these vineyards would have been lost in co-op blends, but now they're being featured in smaller boutique bottlings from producers like those we've been talking about.
3: I think it goes back to a few things. One of the main reasons why there's a high percentage of old wine still in the Swatland is, if you look back at sort of the history of the South African wine industry in the 90s, when South Africa kind of entered the global market again, regions like Stellenbosch, Constantia, a Degree as well, that were much more sort of, commercially oriented, Uh, it was a lot of estates. They went through a very quick change in the grape varieties they were working with. So if you look back in the Platter's Wine Guide, for instance, which is the local guide wineries that's been going since the early 80s. If you look at a lot of the wineries in the 80s, they were focused on grapes like Shannon and Claret Blanche, Simso. Not a lot of them were making Bordeaux blends and straight cabs and Molos. It was only really in the 90s where that changed, and a lot of the wineries, to kind of follow the trends of what was popular out in the world, because we were now allowed to export, started you know ripping out their their claret launch and their Columbard and their Shannon and Cinsault and planting Cab and Merlot and Pinot Noir. But that didn't really reach the Swatland, so the Swatland just carried on because it was a region that was dominated by cooperatives. The Swatland has, I think, about 350 farms that are actually growing grapes. But back in the 90s, there were only, I think, seven wineries here, two sort of estates. And then the rest were cooperatives where these farmers would just deliver their grapes to the co-ops and they would make bulk wine that would be either sold in bulk around the world or or sold to wineries for bottling under their own brands. So this internationalization didn't really reach the Swatland as much as it did in other areas and the varieties that were in the ground just stayed in the ground because people were just delivering grapes to the co-op. So that was one of the blessings in disguise was that these vineyards stayed in the ground and they weren't ripped out. The other thing that happened or that allowed it to happen in the Scotland is it's a region where most of the farmers, most of the growers don't only farm grapes. So if you visit a normal farm here, the the farm is mostly wheat or oats or canola They'll have dairy, then they have olives, uh, and then they'll have vines as well. So so you'll have a 500-hectare farm where they only have 20 or sometimes less, sometimes more, but they're not exclusively grape farmers or wine farmers. So they're not reliant on vines or or grapes for their income. So although there have been some tough times, and and in the late 90s and early 2000s, prices would have been very low, especially for Shannon in, in the Scotland, But the farmers were happy just to break even or or even subsidize their grape farming with their wheat or oats because they look at at the big picture. And grape farming would give their workers something to do during the winter, pruning and and that kind of thing. So that was also one of the the reasons why the vines stayed in the ground. There are many reasons that the Swatland has a lot of old vines, but it's all fortuitous. And I think fortuitous is also the fact that that the region now is is well-known and people are realising how special these vineyards are, and now there's people who are able to pay more for the fruits and sell the wine for a premium to keep the grapes in the soil.
0: At this point, you're probably wondering, old vines of what? What grapes has the Swartland become known for?
5: First of all, Chenin Blanc. It's an amazing variety. It works all over the country, so that was a no-brainer. It was pretty easy. I love the grape. I like the characteristics. I like the diversity of the grape. You can play around so much with the grape. I'm doing a normal Chenin Blanc, and then we also do a skin contact Chenin Blanc. It's amazing how the wines differ. They each have their own personality. And then also we do a bit of Bionier, which is really cool. It's very aromatic. And I just thought that in this warmer climate, it would be nice to work with a grape that's very aromatic but we make it in a fresher style so that we control the aromas by picking it a little bit earlier, having more grape acidity, and that it's not too overpowering. Because a lot of times with these very aromatic whites, it can sometimes be a bit too much in your face. That was one thing that I tried to avoid when started making the Sleeping Co-Pilot, which is the Skin Contact Vionaire. And then to the reds, lately we've started working more and more with pinotage. I think that there's a place for that as well. It's nice to see that in the last decade or so, more and more people have started doing this wine in a fresher style, lower alcohol, less extraction, show another side of the pinotage, because we all know the more serious pinotages, the heavy extracted ones. But this is more my style, the fresher style. I was just on the phone with my girlfriend, and we spoke about Jura wines, and I'm a big fan of Jura, you know, especially the Trousseau and Proussard. And for me, sometimes there's a little bit of a resemblance when you taste these lighter style pinotages and you think of Trousseau as well. So those are definitely... The style of wines with the reds that I favor. And then Syrah. I worked with Syrah at cote I worked in 2010 in cote with Stefan Auger. I learned a lot about Syrah there. I think it works really well in this warmer climate also as a blending component. And then Mouvert. uh, Mouvert, it's an amazing variety. Absolutely amazing. Very easy to farm. Also to make the wine. Basically from once you plant it until it goes into bottle. It's super easy to deal with this wine. And then I think over the last few years, I don't know how many, Maybe 10, 12. Sinso has become very popular in South Africa. The drinkability of the wine is just amazing. It's funny, but whenever I go to a restaurant in South Africa, I, the first one I will look for on a wine list is Sinso, and then I'll order that. Because there's this beautiful perfuminess. It's very fragrant, but at the same time, it's very refreshing. I obviously, like the reds, it's lighter in style, lighter in color. I'm not so, so much for the extraction. It's all about freshness and purity.
2: Obviously, with this sort of warm Mediterranean climate, we realise that this is not a place for cabernet Sauvignon, Pinot Noir, Merlot, etc. So we focus on these sort of Mediterranean varieties. So we own the mother block of Tanat and Petit Sira in South Africa on our property. We've basically focused on Movedereg, Grenache, Carignan, Petit Sira, Tanat, a little bit of Shinnen, a little bit of Pinutas as well. And we're experimenting with Petit Massang as well. With Chakalaka and even with Malabar, stylistically I use less Shiraz with the addition of more, for example, Carrion and Grenache in our blends of the chocolaca and Malabar. And obviously try to keep the alcohol a little bit lower and then obviously less root as well.
0: Swartland's growing conditions obviously suit a wide range of grapes, even if they're mostly so-called Mediterranean varieties, rather than the perhaps more familiar names like Cabernet, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir those dry conditions also mean less disease pressure. Mildew and other sorts of rot that can affect vines thrive when there's moisture around. Because it's dry in the Swartland, it's easier to farm with little or no chemicals, and many farmers are actually embracing organic viticulture.
5: Mostly I would say it's convincing the farmer to convert to organics, because at the moment with Interdego, all the fruit are organic, and that's one criteria. I, I only want to work with organic fruit, and we only do work with organic fruit. Uh, whether we farm it ourselves or whether I buy the fruit from the farmer. But I've been in that lucky position that I've worked with a few farmers now who are all bought into the idea of going organic. I think the relationship with the farmers is um, of utmost importance if you want to go that route.
2: Joel's got vineyard properties in Stellenbosch, Fabio Paul and then Swartland, and then we've got about 135 hectares in Darling, mainly Sauvignon Blanc. And obviously the Swartland is the lowest, risk for downy mildew and infection, so we decided to, to give it a go Yeah, and touch wood so far. We've been very successful with that. I think we'll, we'll get a year that we'll have unusual weather conditions that will have rain close to harvest. Say, for example, during flowering, which is very critical, but we'll have to accept the challenge. I am very excited about this organic farm. I can see all the wine growers in, in the Western Cape in the next 10 years. Everybody will be farming organically.
4: We were drawn to the region because of the awesome vines that were here and the people. But the climate, the warm, dry, breezy climate, allows us to not just farm more naturally. There's very little disease pressure here. And although we have, you know, drought pressure is is really a big deal. We're always kind of on the edge of being too dry. It does really enhance the character of the wine. It really puts a fingerprint on the personality. Of the wine. You taste the sunshine, but there's this concentration of Swartland character, which for me comes down to the fragrance. The wines are very perfumed. The tannin, it helps to have tannins that, that you can polymerize easier. But one of the main things is it allows us to do indigenous yeast fermentations and malolactic. Obviously microbes are a very important part of terroir, and to do indigenous fermentations is like putting a magnifying glass on the soil. And working with Shannon and working with Syrah, which are chameleons of terroir anyway, to farm them naturally and then to do indigenous yeast and mallow fermentations for us, when you taste the wines, they can be from nowhere else in the world but the Swartland. And that for us is one of the most important things about making wine, regardless of our technique or what the analysis says, when you taste them, you taste the Swartland in the glass.
0: That taste needn't include high alcohol. It's usual to expect hotter growing regions to produce big, rich wines. All that heat and sun means more sugar in the grapes, which becomes more alcohol in the wine after fermentation. But there are ways to manage that heat and sunshine in favor of balance and elegance.
5: It comes down to to farming. Definitely to farming. There's a few vineyards that I rent myself, which I farm, which we also, we work a lot. You know, especially as like this time of the year, we start doing composting and we start to do cover crops. I think the main thing is we try to farm the soil because once the soil is happy, the plant is happy. And once the plant is happy, the grapes are happy. And then it just makes it easy to make that wine that you want to do. I think it's it's all about the balance in the soil. It's a balance with the farming. It just makes it a lot easier to make these lower alcohol wines that still have a lot of great freshness. I've seen it with some of the blocks that we started farming in 2015, and the the last two years, we just managed to get amazing results, great acidities, but also good ripeness. And it was definitely all the amount of work that we put into the vineyard. Basically, in the cellar, when it comes to the reds, it's very minimalistic. All the actions that takes place in the winery, it's very minimalistic during harvest. We try to not to interfere, intervene too much. We try not to over-extract. We try not to work the grapes too much. More handling can take place in the vineyards. Even just before we pick, we would maybe go in and just um, drop a few bunches that's been damaged, you know, by birds or whatever. And then when the fruit comes into the winery, it basically goes straight into tanks. So we don't have to handle it another time in the winery. I do two skin contact wines. I do one Chenin Blanc. It's amazing to see what kind of different flavors and what else hides in the grape skin, especially with the white grapes. I think we're all just used to the normal white wines, whether it's Sauvignon or Chardonnay or Chenin or the white blends and stuff. But I think there's a whole another world out there when it comes to the skin contact wines. And I think that's what excites me so much, all those different flavor profiles in the skins, uh, whether it's a Chenin Blanc from Swartland or Stellenbosch or Darling or... Or Wellington, any other varietals. So I think it's a very exciting prospect.
0: Don't imagine that skin contact wines and the other paraphernalia of the natural winemaking playbook are solely a young winemaker's game, either. Even Spice Root is getting in on the act.
2: Three years ago, Charles went to Georgia, not Georgia and US, Georgia and Europe, and then he stumbled upon these natural wines that they do making in these clay pots called Quaveries. And Typical Charles, he went to the guy that makes the quiveries. And he ordered 10 quiveries that arrived just before the 2019 harvest. And then September 2018, I was sent over to Georgia for about two and a half weeks and worked in some wineries. So we are already on our second vintage of natural wines, made and fermented in clay pots underground. It's a new project for us. <laughs>
0: can tell that the winemakers of the Swartland love the region and are excited about the wines they're able to produce there. As we heard, once upon a time, they had to push even their local wine drinkers to try the wines. These days, that's not a problem, and Swartland Wines are gracing the lists of top restaurants around the world. I spoke to sommelier Jonathan Eichholz to get that fine dining perspective.
6: Hello, everyone. I'm Jonathan Eichholz, a sommelier at The Modern, as well as the co-founder and director of the No Ceilings Pop-Up.
0: I'm not familiar with the No Ceilings pop-up. Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
6: Definitely. So kind of outside of the typical working hours of the modern, one thing I've been working on for the past two years is a fine dining pop-up restaurant. A really fantastic communal fine dining experience of about 10 people sitting at a communal table with five courses and wine pairings with Chef Nate Kuster, one of my best friends I met, working at Aquavie back in the day. It's a really fun project we've taken from New York City to Boston, just redefining what fine dining looks like for this next generation.
0: I'll have to keep an eye out for that. You got to taste some Swartland wines, and I think this is an area that you're quite familiar with. Why don't you tell me about your first encounters with wines from the Swartland and what impression they made on you? It's
6: the first time I ever encountered the Swartland as most sommeliers first interact with South Africa, and that's through studying for Court of Master Sommelier exams. And I'll never forget uh, sitting in a small cafe in Washington, D.C. a few years ago, first learning about the different districts and regions and areas throughout the Cape. And found found Swartland super intriguing because I'm a huge fan of Syrah and all the Rhone great varieties and started researching. And as some of us uh, sommeliers typically buy wine for our apartments or houses, it's via these different auction websites. And I went on to WineBid. And thanks to my newfound knowledge of the Swartland, I came up with this bottle of wine with no producer on it. It just said Ex Columella Liberatus, and it was like 40 bucks. So I was like, yeah, might as well. Let's buy it and see what happens. Turns out it lands at my doorstep. It's Sadie Columella. And it was one of the most ethereal wines I've ever experienced, having 04 Columella. I know that's not the typical uh, first wine ever in the Swartland, but it really set the tone for how serious these wines are and the really special place they deserve in the world of wine.
0: That's certainly a great place to start, yeah. As you begin exploring the area, where have the wines fallen stylistically to your palate?
6: Definitely think my palate, the wines occupy this really unique place. I like to view South Africa not as the old world or the new world, but kind of the old new world. It's a very historically planted country with some of the oldest soils on the planet. So I think it's really cool about these wines is you get this really beautiful sense of terroir through these super old soils, as well as this really unique kind of coastal and or inland climate wherever you are in the Swarland. It's this really diverse, beautiful style of wine that I think nowhere else in the world I can replicate.
0: Were you surprised to see how much white wine was being produced in the Swarland and Chenin Blanc in particular?
6: Yeah, definitely. That's something that really surprised me, kind of the Chenin Blancs and a bunch of the different old vine blends you see throughout all these different producers, whether Molyneux or Badenhorst are the really cool stuff that Sadi family's been up to. But those are something that definitely came around to me at a later date, fell in love with a lot of the reds, and then slowly but surely you start picking up on some of the white wines and realizing the really cool things they do with texture. I think what's really fun about Swartland Whites is you get this opulence and generosity of a kind of warmer, drier climate. But at the same time, with these grapes like Chenin Blanc and Rouzon and Semillon, you get this beautiful texture on the palate that's really generous and silky that you don't get to see in many places in the world.
0: What producers or wines from Swartland have you carried on the list at at The Modern or featured with your pop-up?
6: On the list of The Modern, we have a lot of the kind of marquee producers of South Africa. We have almost every Saudi family bottling, a few of the different single-soil-type bottlings from the Molyneux, both in the Syrah and the Chenin Blanc camp, a small little porcelainberg vertical. And from time to time, we've carried some of the Cristal and Hamilton Russell wines, the stuff you expect to see on a very ritzy wine list when you're enjoying a two Michelin star meal. In regards to the modern, I have gotten my hands on some older vintages of Saudi family that I've served alongside a few different courses we've had. Also, actually, one of the uh, Smiley wines, their non-vintage Chenin Blanc, you know, alongside kind of some of the Korean-driven cuisine that Nate will come up with sometimes. Uh, that's been a perfect thing to keep in the back pocket.
0: How have guests reacted to the wines?
6: Both environments, uh, they're very different ways to interact with wine. I think with the modern, you're selling South African wine. Two of my favorite bottlings to talk about are the Sadi Trainspor and the Molyneux Granite. I think to me, those are the two bottlings that have really taken a lot of guests aback, especially when you're looking at such a weird grape like Tinta Baraka being grown in this really special old vine vineyard where you have the fruit and flavors. I think a lot of people are familiar with, with kind of the Beaujolais and stem inclusion fat, but here in a much more serious and intellectual style which I found a lot of tables truly love. And then with the Moulinou Granite, this idea of you might like these wines of Kornos and Cote Roti, but have you had it with that like little kiss of New World fruit, but still that tension of these really deep kind of savory soil types and the way they affect the wine.
0: Now, before we talked, I know we sent you a few bottles. I think some of them are producers you've probably worked with, some maybe not. Do you want to talk about how those fit in with your overall impressions of the Swirland?
6: Definitely. I think what's really cool about the three wines I had the opportunity to taste is they kind of tell the story of the region. It's actually the first time I've ever seen or enjoyed the Spice Route wines and knowing kind of the really special place they occupy in history, being kind of one of the first modern producers there in the 90s and then offering the first opportunity for Eben to come work there. And then after that, kind of recruiting a bunch of very talented winemakers into the Swartland. So it was really fun to see that wine on the table right alongside the Molyneux Old Vines White and the Porcelainberg Syrah. So... First time I ever had that, and it's interesting to see the role it plays stylistically in the history of the Swartland, as well as showing all these cool old vine grapes. Then kind of to uh, contrast the blend we see and the spice Route, you have the single varietal, single-site porcelainberg, which really tells the story of the mountain it grows upon. And then last but not least, the Molyneux Old Vines White. Actually, first time I've ever had this wine. I mean, it was a super special white wine to me. I think what really blew me away here is after just letting it sit in the glass for a while and really come to room temperature, There is such a diversity of flavors going on. It's like white needle tea and pear and a whole melange of flowers, but it was still really textured and satin and just really tasty. And it was fun to see Chenin Blanc and Semillon and all these really old grapes of the Swartland together. The three really fun and special wines that really deserve their place in the grand canon of the Swartland.
0: Now that you're more familiar with the area, what would be your big takeaway? If someone said, I don't know the Swartland, where should I start? Where would you point them?
6: I think the first place I would point them is kind of to those new school, really approachable producers. Like I think a lot of the wines from Adi Badenhorst and the Molyneux are come at a really cool approachable price point for people to start getting used to these wines and not having to uh, commit too much to them a kind of a porcelain burger Sadi bottling. But this is kind of the first place I would put someone towards, because these are wines early, tell the story of a place and are super delicious and are really unique, honestly. And I think if you find people who like some more classic old-world styles of wines and are maybe dipping their toes in the new world, those are kind of some really fun wines to start people in the direction of.
0: Mm-hmm. In your studies, are you familiar with the Swartland Independent Producers?
6: Yep. For the good old <laughs> master way exam I'm gearing up for, you have to know each and every stipulation they have, and it's really cool to see all the regulations and rules in place to really build a consortium of winemakers that are focused on telling the story of this place and showing it to the world.
0: So you you think that's an important tool for clarifying the identity of Swartland Wines?
6: Yeah, I think it's an absolutely fantastic organization. And when you see a lot of these up and coming younger wine regions in the world, when the first top level producers start getting together and putting all of their power together to go around the world and show their wines, it's a a really special thing to see, and kind of what the quality you're already seeing coming from this region is uh, absolutely fantastic.
0: Great. Well, is there anything else you'd like people to know about the Swartland that we didn't talk about yet?
6: Yeah, I think two things that I think are really important about the Swartland is one, the size of it is so fascinating, with it being the largest demarcated area within South Africa, and there's so much diversity kind of within these three large mountains that the Swartland sits under, and kind of the whole influence of the coast. So I'm really excited to see. Where this region is headed seeing the diversity that can happen and whether they further demarcate it i know this past year they've come up with the uh, cape west coast uh, to fully showcase the coastal regions of this area but it's going to be intriguing to see how producers differentiate themselves uh, showcasing the huge diversity of soils here which i'm really looking forward to and then kind of the other big takeaway for me is uh, the old vine project i think it's really cool to see producers dedicate themselves to the history of this region and putting it on the front of their bottle and hunting out these older vine vineyards to keep them alive and telling the story of this place.
0: You are on top of things that the Cape West Coast is only officially announced February 28th. So that is leading edge news right there.
6: Yeah, weirdly enough, it became a question in uh, three of my master's theory groups that same week. So hopefully <laughs> I'm going to forget that one.
0: <laughs> wow. One interesting thing, would it surprise you to hear that I know of someone who's planted several hectares of Pinot Noir
6: in the Swartland? Yeah, that'd be super fascinating. I'd love to learn more about that.
0: I think it's going to be a little while before we see the wines, but Johann Meyer has bought some property up on the top of the Picketberg, which is up in the northern part of Swartland, and it's at quite a high elevation. So he thinks it's cool climate enough to grow Pinot, and he's got enough experience with the grape that he should know. So that'll be very exciting to see.
6: Yeah, that's super fascinating. And also, there's a question for you, Jim. As someone who's very familiar with this region and all the people that inhabit it and make delicious wine, what's the most exciting thing for you?
0: Oh, boy. I think Syrah has been such a center for many producers. But now, I think the move to explore Grenache and Cinso has really expanded the color palette and the stylistic palette of the wines for the region. You have David Soddy, who's really focusing on Grenache. Donovan Rawls is doing Cinso is an important part of that. So really getting freshness out of the wines. And with that, and this is true of the Syrahs too, in the early years, a lot of the wines were quite big, but the amount of elegance and even lower alcohols that the wines are getting without sacrificing ripeness and flavor is really exciting.
6: That sounds absolutely amazing. And that's one of the things I really love about this region is the opportunity to showcase maybe a riper climate and style, but still with a ton of elegance and stuff that really isn't overblown, but really focused.
0: Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you very much for taking
6: the time to chat with me, Jonathan. No, thank you so much and uh, really looking forward to the book coming out on July 20th.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, me too. That does it for today. You can find more resources and links to the producers we spoke with, the Swartland Independent Producers, The Modern and Jonathan's No Ceilings Pop-Up, at our website, wosa.us. The book Jonathan mentioned is my own. Outside of my responsibilities for Wines of South Africa, I've written a book titled Wines of South Africa. Look for it on July 20th, published by Infinite Ideas as part of the Classic Wine Library. A lot of restaurants around the U.S. are struggling right now. If you can, please look into ways to help them out. We'd all like to have some nice places to eat once we get outside of our houses and apartments again. And if you're a fan of wine, consider supporting the United Sommelier Foundation. They're working to keep the community of dedicated sommeliers afloat during these trying times. At the end of May, they're partnering with Hacker to hold an online auction to raise funds. A lot of top industry members have donated wines, so there's some really exciting lots to check out. I've included a link on our website. Please take a look. Finally, if you've enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends, or better yet, go to the platform where you found it and leave a review. That will help more people discover it and discover South African wines. Next episode, we'll turn our attention to a grape that's definitely not associated with the Swartland, Cabernet Sauvignon. Specifically, we'll look at how the grape does in Stellenbosch, in many ways the center of the South African wine industry. Cabernet has increasingly become recognized as the region's flag bearer. Some people even call Stellenbosch South Africa's Napa. I think we'll find there's much more to it than that. See you then.